Welcome to the Exit Podcast. This is Dr. Bennett, joined here by Robert B., uh, Exit member. He's a, a white-collar professional who's done a lot of side hustles. I want to talk to him about one that he's been particularly successful at and brought some innovation to, which is third-party book sales, Amazon book sales. Welcome, Robert. Hi, yeah. It's fun to be here. And I, I've listened to all the episodes so far. They've all been uh, really good. Actually, I'm a, I, I listened to the uh, the one with uh, with Indian Bronson last night, and I was thinking like, oh no, now I, this guy, he goes up there and he, um, he talks about like finding inspiration from, uh, Sanskrit texts and, <laughs> uh, you know, Hindu mythology. And I'm going to now tell you about, uh, taking textbooks out of dumpsters and selling them. <laughs> well, I, I am, I am similarly in awe of guys like that. I am, I am shockingly, uh, uh what's the opposite of well-read? Uh, I, I don't, I don't have, uh, those, that great corpus of books that I can point to. Um, but I wanted to talk to you about, you were one of our, our, uh, sort of founding members, earliest people to jump on, uh, which I, which I really appreciated. And I wanted to know sort of what your dream for exit is like, what's, uh, if you could structure your exit from the corporate world, any way that you wanted to and end up anywhere you wanted to what would you do? Yeah. And I, I don't have, um, I'm pretty easy to please. I would say, I mean, for me, it really just comes down to like the sense of control of, you know, I, I want to make my, make my own money in my own ways and make enough of it that I can, that I can live uh, comfortably. I don't have to be, I don't have to be super rich or anything, but, um, but I've always found personally that I feel more satisfied, more, more fulfilled doing maybe even something mundane, but that as long as it's, it's my thing, not everyone is like that. Some people would rather work for the man, I guess, but doing something interesting for the most part, I'd rather not, you know, just, just want to avoid the man. And yeah, uh, yeah that's all, that's all it really is for me. I mean, I want to, yeah, I definitely want to have financial independence. I want to be able to, create like the, a, a good upbringing for my kids. And I want to do, you know, maybe businesses where kids can be involved or not to the extent that like they're capable or, um, or interested. Um, and then, you know, and leave, maybe leave things that are still operating for them. And that's, that's what it kind of comes down to for me. I, there's a lot of trade-offs I'm, I'd be happy to make to have that, just to have that sense of ownership and control. Yeah. So are, are you thinking of, finding finding sort of one thing that you commit to or it sounds like you're interested in like sort of a lot of different hustles yeah it's a lot of things i think and it, that comes back i think to not to not caring too much about what it is um i'd i guess i'd rather have like five things that make some amount of money than you know one one thing that makes all the money because in part it's just you know it's always they tell you to to diversify that's part of it you know have different things so maybe macro conditions or in the economy affect one of your five businesses, but not the other four, that sort of thing. Yeah. Or, or maybe some of them, some of my businesses would be, some of them might not be cancel proof or whatever, but some, but the rest of them would be that sort of thing just to have multiple, like, so you can kind of 
kind of play different different parts of it. And, and there's maybe some intellectual stimulation too of just doing different things. Yeah. And as far as like your your family situation, would you want to be out in the country or are are we trying to make this work in in the suburbs or in the city? I think for the near term, it's going to have to be suburb. My personal preference would be uh, to be a little more remote. Maybe that'll that'll happen someday, but but right now I think it's going to have to be just given certain family things, certain relative things. It's going to have to be suburban, I think. Yeah, just to be close to people. I one of the things that I was fascinated by from from the interview with with uh, Indian Bronson is his vision of of this is not like a compound in the woods at all, which is has never been what I felt like is is what it has to be, but he's got this very like urban vision of exit and, and sort of hiding in plain sight and being pseudonymous and getting paid in crypto and, and, um, and being, being free because if they change the laws in a way you don't like, you can just hop a plane. Yeah. And I don't know if that works necessarily for us because we're trying to build these extended kin groups and communities. And it's hard to see how that, functions. But I also think about like in the church, we already sort of do that where like the institution exists everywhere you go and it's the same institution and you just plug into it, Mm -hmm. which enables us to have this sort of stability in mobility, which I don't know. I don't know of any other, any other group that has that, where it's that easy to. That level of, uh, yeah. Like, and, and I think as well, they used to, um, we, 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 we won't talk too much about like church stuff, but um, church leaders used to talk more, a little more about contributing in your local ward or, you know, congregation. Yeah. Um, it, I haven't noticed it as much recently, but it felt like in like the seventies or something, you read these old talks and they were talking a lot about contributing locally and they, they would warn about, you know, like RVs, like you're going to get an RV and just disappear every weekend. Like, ah, yeah. So, but so that is something I think about too, though. It's like really important to like have a long stand, ideally a long standing congregation that you're going to for a long time, uh, which is actually one of my one of my sort of suburban issues right now. Is that like I'm I'm pretty flexible, but my family's pretty pretty happy with the ward. So yeah, with the congregation, they want to stay there and they want to keep going and seeing those people. And so so that's one of those things, though. So well, and that seems like it doesn't have like a technological. Solu- like he's all about these technological solutions, which is like you know he's a genius, and the stuff that he comes up with is brilliant. But like I'm thinking about how do you? I, I don't know that there's like a, a, a fix to the problem of other than other than like everybody goes together. Like, and that's yeah. uh, if you've talked to Jesse Lucas about this, he has this vision of sort of returning to uh, tribal pastoralism almost where we're big uh, sort of gypsy camps that move around, which, you know, uh, is a little fanciful, but it's a fun idea. Well, that's Um, actually, that's, that's kind of a side interest of my, this concept I've had for a long time, which I can't be, you know, like the person who thought of this first or whatever, but you see like uh, these gentrification cycles, you know, and maybe a bad part of a city or even a small town or something. If you had a small amount of people who were committed um, it would it would only take you know a handful of families, but but it would probably have to be families. Go choose a spot and just say you know we're going to get really cheap real estate in this area, and we're going to be good neighbors. We're not going to come in and be like you know some cult that is really bad to our to our host. But you could very quickly you know like improve a bunch of cheap property and make the place hip and cool or whatever, 
uh, normally gentrification happens in a very different way. Like, you know, artists and uh, less, um, maybe less uh, wholesome people yeah. move in and start gentrifying. But I think, I think you could do some intentional gentrification like with groups, but that's a sort of a side thing. That's something I, I've thought about quite a bit. Yeah. Uh, the fellas have, have often coveted those like $10,000 houses in Detroit where it's yeah. like, we could go buy like several blocks of that with our n- not really remarkable middle-class incomes. We could go buy an enormous amount of, of land out there. And of yeah. course you'd have to, you'd have to, you know, replace all the copper pipes that have been stripped and, and, and basically bulldoze those houses. I mean, they'd be, they'd be uninhabitable, but um, and, and then you get into sort of like, well, you're dealing with the local politics and, 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 how much would that be a problem? But um, I, I, I'm fascinated by that idea of sort of we all go together. And then how do you coordinate that? Like, you know, when does the group decide that it's time to leave? And, and boy, it'd just be logistically. Um, yeah, it, it'd be tough. It'd be it'd, yeah. it'd prohibitively so, at least in, right now in my case. But um, yeah. someone, some group of people who have the right uh, mix of personalities is going gonna, is gonna to do this, I think. And they're going to, it's going to be, uh, and a big component of it is that they will make it look very cool. And, yeah. and that will very rapidly increase like property values. And then they'll all sell out and leave once, uh, <laughs> once everyone else comes. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I want to talk about this too, because like going back to the, the, the church, I've never got the sense from the brethren that they're like Luddites or reactionaries. Like as much as we get accused of sort of being, 1950s throwbacks every time they're talking about technology they're talking about what a miracle it is and yeah. how exciting it is and you know and, and part of that is, is i'm sure just their perspective of because they were all born in like the 1920s 1930s and that's not that's less so that's less true today but yeah. you know the, the the gordon b hinckley generation sort of was they got to see refrigeration and air conditioning and and uh popularized flight and computers and uh, all this stuff. And, you know, they, 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 you know, they were, they were open eyed about the challenges of that, especially with like pornography and media and, and, and uh, sort of technology addiction, but they always framed it as like, this is something that you need to embrace and find the right way to use. Yeah. And it's, I mean, yeah, we all, we joke about, you know, like return, uh, <laughs> and it's and it's yeah it's it's not gonna we don't i don't think we're gonna get gonna get to return um we're gonna get to make but not return so yeah. and yeah these tools are all i mean w- yeah we joke around a lot about the, the the bad side of technology but they do allow you to organize information so quick and if you're if you have good intentions and good people doing that organizing um that's a really powerful thing now of course yeah we see that it's a lot of really bad people uh, are also using those tools, but, um, but yeah, we, we can use them too. And, and we can, we can build awesome things. I mean, just in terms of this group, like I imagine what it would be like to, if we were in a similar uh, state of sort of cultural and national decline and my social group was restricted to the people that I work with, that would be unbelievably isolating. Mm-hmm. And uh, so the fact that I get to find like-minded people all over the country and network with them and, you know, find, you know, they, they find me jobs. I find them jobs. We, we sort of move around the mobility 
of our time is, is a, is a gift as well as a challenge. And like, you know, the, the missionaries right now, I, I don't, I don't even know how it works at this point, but it seems like it's mostly like Facebook and, and Instagram and like their sort of social media. Uh, they're not knocking doors, which is, you know, probably a good thing, but like, it doesn't seem like we've found the, the, the right application of that technology yet, but like, they're clearly trying. Yeah. Yeah. Every, um, you know, I do have some of those like legacy social media accounts and sometimes I get, uh, yeah, followed by, by missionaries. And, uh, and then that's even before I realized they're in my actual local congregation. And I'm like, who is this? I'm like, why am I being followed? Why did four, uh, 20 year old girls just follow me at the same time? This is weird. Um, which is yeah, funny. Cause it. that would be, I would be either missionaries or like a, a Slovakian <laughs> porn site or something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah it's uh yeah i guess that's a i mean yeah i guess that's how they have to do it right now but um but yeah i mean i i in general i mean i i'm i'm not a what would the term be technophobe or whatever i'm i'm a tech optimist or whatever i i used to actually work around some like tech investing and yeah. um i was really pretty into that and I'm, I'm pretty positive about it i mean i saw a lot in in real time i was seeing a lot of things i didn't like uh, or seeing the writing on the wall, um, that certain products I was, you know, reviewing for investment would maybe not make it or not, not that they wouldn't make it, that they wouldn't, uh, they wouldn't be a good thing for society. And yeah. then some of them have gone on to not be a good thing for society, but, but yeah, in, in total, I'm actually a tech optimist. Uh, I like to use tech to meet cool people and to organize aspects of my own life or to, you know, automate some things not that we should automate away every mundane thing we have to do, but I, I do use it to my advantage. The, the brethren seem to like celebrate labor saving in a big way. And um, yeah. more time which, for, uh, or for prayer. I, I mean, and that sounds like a joke, but it's like, if, if you're doing the, the big challenge, I think economically and, and personally for so many people is that we've, we've had these things that have made it so we could free up our time. We just didn't do better things with that time. Yeah. So, and just one more, one more point on this, on this sort of larger topic, I was reading Elder Holland's address about BYU. He talks about the, the idea of a, of a celestial college town and, and sort of the, the school being integral to the holy city. And mm-hmm. that got me thinking about just the idea of a holy city period is so hard for us to understand, like in our context, because the, the, the cities are just so ideologically like tagged as, as hostile tagged as enemy territory. Yeah. And like, what would that even look like? What would a Holy city even be? And, and, you know, uh, I think Bronson's general idea is like Singapore, uh, but Singapore, Singapore definitely uh, is not, it's a very secular, very sort of brass tax place. Yeah. Productivity fetish sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. But but it got me thinking that, yeah, yeah what, what would a holy city look like to you? Yeah, that's interesting. I, and I'm actually racking my brain for like, have I been to a place that's like city scale that had a holiness about it? And, and I mean, I don't know. I mean, you're going to see a lot of people talking online about the architecture and that's, uh, that's important. I, I would think a holy city would have beautiful art- architecture. Yeah. Uh, but that would be, that's obviously secondary to the actual like hearts and minds of the people there. This uh, maybe sound a little cheesy, but. There are 
there were at least there were it's been a while since i've actually spent meaningful time in in salt lake there were times when you could be around like the temple square area and it was like extremely clean uh people were um like very you know polite uh and there was some of that vibe back then but it's been a long time since i really like lived there you know i imagine living in an apartment building uh in in some city and having because like an apartment building if you think about it is probably roughly like ward scale Mm -hmm. uh roughly like dunbar number uh number of people in it and i guess to me the vision of of like a holy city would be a place where you know you're not going to make many more connections than that just because of the limitations of time and your brain to hold that many people in it and so you are going to be surrounded by strangers but you're also going to have your community within that sort of mass of humanity. And I guess that the difference would be the depth of connection with that local community and then sort of how, how much threat there is or how much uncertainty there is about the, the mass of humanity that surrounds that community. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Just being, yeah. It'd be interesting to be in a place where you could reasonably anticipate that, that most everyone you would interact with has not just the same values. Cause I mean, I think you, you can kind of do that now, but uh, the same like high level values, um, like at kind of a more at a at a more holy level, I guess. But yeah, have being confident that that all your interactions are going to be uh, sort of on that plane. That yeah, I don't. I'm unfamiliar with this really. I mean, you know, you, there's small gatherings where I can anticipate that, but but I, I I'm not. I'm having a hard time even conceptualizing a like a really big place where that would be the yeah. case. <laughs> And, and the closest, I mean, actually the closest analog that I can think of is that word structure where I go to, I go to any number of words. Like if you're, if you're uh, traveling or you're, you're on assignment or something, you go to any number of words and you sort of know what you're getting. That would be the closest thing of like, you know, no, I'm not friends with these people, but I know that we're, we have the same orientation. For me, psychologically at this point, I'm capable of conceiving of like a holy village. But like, yeah, um, but the, but to think of it at a big enough scale, maybe I, maybe I lack vision, but that's, or just the psychological capacity, but that's sort of where I'm at. Like I could see that, you know, you know, some of the people we're hanging out with online, I could imagine that. Um, yeah. Smaller scale, but. And even that, you know, the people we hang out with online are so schismatic that <laughs> <laughs> maybe that's hard to picture. Yeah. It, it's, it's a, it's a strange dream. Anyway, so, so I want to talk about the book sales and how that went for you, to what scale you built that business and why you didn't go further with it, you know, what you would sort of counsel someone who was contemplating the same thing. Yeah. So, yeah, we'll, we'll come down from the, uh, the heavenly and talk about something that's very, <laughs> very pedestrian. So, yeah, I was, I was doing... Um, this was, I was doing grad school. Um, so I was at a, on a university campus and I just wanted some sort of like side hustle or something. Cause like school was, school was not that demanding. And so I needed something else to kind of like do for fun and, and it's nice to make money. Um, so I don't, I don't know where I initially got the idea, but I started, started just flipping and sell flipping old books. And I, I just realized on Amazon, it was very easy to uh, just look up the, a book and see if it, it sells for, for enough money that it's uh, worth listing. 
And so I just started checking every book I had. Anything I wanted to get rid of, I would just see, okay, maybe I can sell this. And, and there's a lot. Most of them don't have any value, but a lot of them do. And then the thing about being on a campus was there's books everywhere. And so I was like, people would give me their books. They're like, they're like I'm not going to go to the hassle of going to the library and sending in a line and returning these for cash. Because there was those places that would do that. But a lot of people aren't even going to do that. Or people just leave on places or I'd go to like the dorms on the day where everyone gets like evicted or whatever. I mean, not evicted, but move out day. Yeah. And there would just be like furniture and books all over the place. So I just take them and sell them. And these are textbooks. So they're pretty valuable. Uh, it's, I mean, if you are going to get into to book selling, you know, textbooks are like the Holy grail and you're not going to find a lot of textbooks unless you're just getting lucky um, or yeah. like, or you're on a campus, but furniture. So there's like textbooks and furniture. I wasn't doing furniture because I didn't have like a big van or a truck or anything, Mm. but furniture is a a great category to flip as well. Like um, you can often get furniture free and then sell it for 75 bucks or something like that. Like it's, it's not huge money, but um, it's pretty easy money. Uh, Or you can buy something for, you know, 50 bucks and easily sell for 150. That's really common. If you go on YouTube, you'll find a lot of like couch flippers and stuff like that. And it's, it is pretty easy. I've done a little bit of it. Yeah. And um, I guess the limiting factor on that is just how much can you fit in the back of a truck and drive around? Yeah. It's like your space. And so I mean, it, become, it's, it becomes a logistics business and a storage business um, pretty fast. But it's just, I guess, kind of kind of the broader point, and I'll hit on this a few times, I think, is just like always be looking out for that stuff if, if you need money um, and if you have the time and if you... But it's but, probably uh, like the easiest way to convert free time without a lot of like uh, yeah. skill or investment into some money. Yeah, totally. So then with books, um, after I was done with school, I would, I would then, you know, there's a lot of people who go to like these big book sales um, and you, you can find them all over. There's like websites devoted to knowing where they are and when they're going to be. I mean, the pandemic stuff has probably messed that up, but there's these big book sales and you go. And if you've ever been to one, you know what I'm talking about. You see a bunch of people and I will call them weirdos. Um, they have these like barcode scanners and they're scanning every single book in this place and they're trying to find the valuable ones and they're going to buy them and take them. And these people are, they tend to be very rude and they're very awful. Like as a, as a veteran of the book selling industry, I don't think these people should even be allowed inside of uh, these book sales. I'm picturing this is sort of like scavenger, like Jawa type people. It's, it's exactly that. And <laughs> like you can, you can probably hear the contempt I have. Like I don't, these are, these are some of the most annoying people. I've just, I've seen them like knock over children and like uh, take books out of people's hands. They're just like, they're just very annoying. And so you don't want to be them uh, for two reasons, because they're bad people. And also because they, what they're doing is pretty low return on their time. Uh, Some of them do make a ton of money, but, but yeah, you don't, it's a, it's a real big grind what they're doing. So what I decided to do instead is like, and I would also go to like thrift stores and thrift stores are okay. But the big problem with, thrift stores for finding books that have value is that uh, most thrift stores, especially at the big chains like Goodwill, they have an in-house team that goes through the books first and puts them online. So they take all the good ones out and sell them on Amazon. If you go on Amazon right now and find Google any book that you are interested in buying, look at the used listings, you're going to see like uh, Goodwill of Michigan or Goodwill of Arizona, Goodwill of Southeastern U.S., they will be selling that book because yeah, they took it out of circulation. So when, when you donate like to Goodwill, you think, Oh, I'm, I'm going to be donating this thing so someone can get it for cheap. It's like, 
that's not the case. Yeah. They're going to take the good stuff first and they're going to sell it at market value to just some normal consumer. That's not like, I mean, you're helping Goodwill raise money and I don't know if they do good things with that money, but uh, you're not necessarily helping the poor. So but what I figured is, okay, well, Goodwill is my competitor. Um, like these other, these people with their scanners, they are not my competitor because um, I don't want to do what they're doing. Goodwill has all the books. So I, so where are the good books? Like they're in, they're on the, they're on the shelves of like old people's houses yeah, uh, or at your house. Like you have good books. So what I started doing is like going to Craigslist maybe and find people who are like off or like an estate sale or something and, and offer to buy like the whole library, hmm. um, you know, for like 10 cents a book, 20 cents a book, something like that. And then you go through them. Most of them are junk. Uh, if you're operating at a big enough scale, which I was not, but if you are, you can start to get deals with like paper recyclers. They'll buy your, your old junk books or something from you. Um, so like, it's kind of like a, every part of the Buffalo thing. Like there's like, always look for that, whatever you're doing, like, um, any sort of business you're doing, like I know electricians who don't, you don't save like copper wiring. And that to me is like very funny. It's like you, this stuff that goes up in value all the time, they'll cut off like pounds and People pounds will, of a day and they don't save it. They throw it away. Yeah. People um, will break into buildings to steal that. Yeah. And so, so just think about that. Like, I, you know, if you're, I don't know if this is the case, but I was thinking about like that landscaping episode you did. And, um, I've been watching like some landscaping YouTube videos just cause I, I watch a lot of YouTube videos and like some of the guys were complaining about disposal fees. Like they have to pay to dump their grass somewhere or whatever. Right now. I don't know that much about landscaping. So like, if it's possible, find a, like find someone who will, who needs it so you can dump it for free or find someone who might even buy it or some, I don't know if glass clippings have any value to anyone, but. Well, yeah, that's, I mean, yeah. Cause I, I mean, that was one of the reasons why I was sort of contemplating the, the uh, yard waste uh, side of that business, because one of the biggest problems is that a dump run is like a hundred, 150 bucks in some places, but I have 10 acres of land and I could dump basically as many leaves as I can gather. You know yeah. what I mean? Like they're not going to, not going to make a problem. So. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, that's kind of like, that's part of my thing is like, just always be looking for that, um, that other way to like, to improve your operation. Now I totally get that. A lot of people are just like, I don't want to be doing, I want to be financially free, but I don't want to be doing some dumb business and that's fine. But I personally, I find that when I'm like bringing my brain to it, I'm like, actually, like it can be the dumbest thing ever. Like it could be, you know, maybe you're like doing like sanitation, you're picking up porta potties or something, but finding just ways to do it differently and better that like your competitors aren't doing or something. There's like a lot of satisfaction, at least for me in doing that. Back to the the book stuff though, you want to think of Goodwill as your competitor. So you want to get those books from, from like old people who have a big library before, before they just, I mean, before they die and it just gets donated to Goodwill. Just I mean, sell. just in sort of in sort of general terms, if if there's some big institution that is sort of aggregating the treasure pile for you to look through, they've probably already picked it through. I mean, that's 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 true of like Amazon and you know, yeah, all of these third parties. So the, the the farther up that process you can go to sort of the raw like pay dirt. Uh, yeah, it's got to be the better you you do. Yeah, like a a personal library that's never been that no one's ever looked through. 
Uh, and it was, like, it was really bad of me, but I, I would notice when I'd go to other people's houses, I'd just like start eyeing their bookshelves and stuff because I, I had a really good sense for what was valuable. And I would just sit there and be like, oh my goodness, they have, there's got to be like a thousand dollars of books on that shelf. Like there's so many books. There's some of them are so good. I, I know those ones would sell. Um, but you get to know, I mean, that's another thing too, is you, anything you, you get to know your industry. And you, I think if you're, if you're doing your own thing and it's for you and it's for your family, you just, you get into it, I think in a different way. Yeah. At least I do. And find there's like a lot more to it than, than you ever maybe thought possible. So yeah. So I started going on Craigslist, getting people's collections. Now here's where I like kind of, here's where I got off the boat. I was running out of like storage space in my own home. And it was like that, that cross that crossroads where I'm like, do I want to keep growing this or I could maintain and just stay how I'm doing, but, but I want to make more money or I could get like commercial space and grow. And I decided against that. And actually it's kind of a, kind of a funny story, but, but where I, where I really knew it was kind of over was where, where I realized it was time to end. I'd found this, this real treasure trove on Craigslist. Someone, someone I think had died. I, I wasn't sure, but I think someone had died and there was like 5,000 books in their house. And I was, they posted a bunch of pictures and you can just go through the pictures and like read titles. And if mm. you, once you know, you kind of like know what's good. And a lot of this stuff was like old history texts. Um, there was a ton of like uh, religious, uh, particularly like Jewish esoterica. Like I just knew this stuff. Like, there was easily, there was numerous like 100, 200, $500 books in there. There's, um, wow. And there was 5,000 of them. So I'm like, I'm like, this is at least this is at least like 20 grand worth of books or something like the average, Jeez. the average value of these books is going to be a couple bucks each. Cause they're just, they're all so good. And there's a few real high, high ticket ones in there. And so I, um, I'm like, okay. And that's when I decided I'm like, all right, I'm going to scale up because I'm going to go get all 5,000 of these books and I'm going to need a storage locker and a, I'm going to need to rent a van to pick them up. So I, I go and rent the van and I contact the guy who's getting rid of them. Who's just like a, I think he was a real estate guy or something. Cause it's like, he was trying to sell off this house where someone had died. And he's like, yeah, man, you can, you can come get the books. And then I get there and he's like, he's like, Oh, sorry. I gave him away. Someone else came. <laughs> and I was just like, like, what are you talking about? Like I talked to him like three times, like I talked to him the day before I talked to him that morning. And then I confirmed on my way over. And then like in the 30, no I got there, some other guy came and got him. Um, <laughs> so so that I mean, that's, a, that's a challenge with, with like vision, right. Is, is if yeah. they don't, if they don't see the value of what they have, which is a good thing in, in a certain sense, yeah. uh, then they also don't get that. It's freaking important that you don't just hand it off to somebody else. Yeah. <laughs> so that's, that's where I'm like, okay, it's like probably time to like, to, and then I wanted to reclaim the space in my house and stuff. I'm like, all right, that's, that's, that's it. I'll, I'll think I'll, I'll, I'll exit the business for now. That would be, had, that'd be yeah. brutally demoralizing. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm like a very, uh, I guess to use like a modern term, I'm very chill, but that was like super, super mad. Um, I don't get that mad very <laughs> often, but the, the, so that's when I got out of it. But the, I guess the broader point for anyone who's like curious about this stuff is that I was doing like easily less than 10 hours a week. Probably, oh, I mean, probably more like four, probably like four hours a week. I would like stop at certain thrift stores that I knew that I knew weren't filtering first. They were like kind of lower, uh, lower end thrift stores. They weren't big chains. Yeah. Um, they just put whatever they had on the shelf. And, and I even, you know, you know, this is one of those things where you just, you be scrappy and you, you, you know, you talk to the manager, you tell them, 
you can sometimes tell them what you're doing and they don't really care. And they'll like be like, oh, fine. Just you can go in the back room. You can look at the stuff before anyone sees it. Wow. Um, like if you're going to come in here every every Tuesday and buy like 100 books, we don't we don't we're, we're happy to let you, you know, go in the back room sort of thing. Yeah. So I would stop at this like thrift, a couple of different thrift stores um, after work. And I can't when I was driving places and that was pretty much all I was doing. And I was, I was probably making a bad month, like 1200 bucks and on a good month, like 2,500 bucks. Um, Four hours a week. It's not bad. Yeah, it was really good. I knew, and then I just knew, like I had the model scale or like fine tuned enough. I knew that if I just started scaling up, it would, it would keep returning at a similar rate. Maybe, maybe the rate of return would go down a little but but I knew it would still be good. Um, but then, it just, I mean, I had a real job. I was trying to do a good job at that job and I was trying to focus on that and stuff. So, yeah. Well, so it, it t- tell me a little bit about like, cause if it's four hours a week, but you're, you're making these trips, you're picking up these books. You, uh, so are you, are you at, at the thrift store, are you buying like big piles of books or are you just picking the winners? I'm picking winners. Um, okay. And also making some guesses. So you can tell what the winners are. There's little, there's little tools you can get that are like, that are just like uh, Bluetooth peripherals for your smartphone. Uh, you can get like these little barcode scanners or something. The same ones that the, that the weirdos at the book fair are using. You can get those and just like scan a book. And, you, and there's like third-party software you can buy that will tell you that you can like set some limits and say just like if a book meets the following criteria, just, just, uh, t- just make the screen go green and I'll buy, I'll get it. Yeah. And uh, so I was doing that a bit at the thrift stores and stuff. And then the, I was, you know, you just develop an eye for it. So there's stuff I would, some, some things the databases just don't have, they just don't know if it'll be mm. valuable or not, but you get a sense for it and you get it anyway. Uh, and then, so yeah. and then you, so you take your big box home and then you, you list them then, on Amazon. Yeah. You got to list them. That's a somewhat manual process. There's like software and tools you can get to automate it. Um, some people that I know of in like the, in the third party book world, they'll get like some house housewife, find someone who will do it for them and they'll pay them, you know, like 10 cents a book or five cents a book or something like that. And okay. Oh yeah. That's pretty easy to do to find someone to help you do it. Yeah. The way I was doing, it, I was doing it by myself, but, but yeah, I was just on the verge of like outsourcing. And I mean, at that, at that level of return, being, it, being able to do it by yourself and still pull in that kind of return with that kind of time investment is, is pretty impressive. So, yeah. And I think it's the only reason it was that good. It, it's not that good. If you just, um, if you just go to like a book fair or Goodwill or whatever, the only reason it was that good is because I was going like upstream before, before books got into the system where like yeah. anyone could find them. Um, which is like kind of my, my bigger point here, I think is like, just understand your business and understand the value chain and then go play in the part of the value chain that really makes sense for what you're doing. Don't just like see how everyone else does it and do it the same way. There's, there's some benefit in doing that sometimes because they've, they've laid the path out, maybe start that way, but then. And that if you're, you're, if you're hesitant or you're sort of risk averse or, or like you're, you're worried if it's going to be worth the time, maybe having that. Uh, laid out for you. I'm the type of guy. I just, just in order to overcome my sort of innate laziness, mm-hmm. I, I need to see a path so that I can do it. Yeah. You know, so that I can muster up the the will to do it. And uh, so, yeah, maybe you start there, but then, yeah, you got to quickly be thinking like, 
all of the smart things to be done with this business can't have already been done. Yeah. And even if they are, um, it's, there's at least when I was doing books, it still felt like there was enough meat on the bone, uh, like just in the whole, in the broader market. Yeah. Um, and I disclaimer, I don't know how the pandemic stuff has altered that I've heard. And I have not done like a deep dive. I've heard that books like used book values have gone up just like used cars have gone up. Hmm. Um, because people are maybe reading more, they have more time, they're just sitting around, but then, but then maybe, I don't know if Amazon has changed any of their rules, but there's other marketplaces too, but Amazon's obviously the, the main one. Yeah. But yeah, I don't know if, I don't know if conditions in the market have changed very much. I guess that's, that's all I'm saying. Well, and books, books are such an interesting commodity. And I mean, this is why Amazon got started as a bookseller, right? Is because they were each instance of a particular book is just so uniform and so regular. Like there's, they have the quality sort of level of like, is it in bad shape? Is it in good shape? But like, you know, the exact weight, you know, the exact content, like it's, it's a very, it's a very uniform product. And so it's really amenable to like archiving in a database and, Mm -hmm. and providing to people because like, well, like uh, if you're, if one of the biggest challenges with uh, getting people to start doing e-commerce was like, I'm going to, I'm going to order this from a site that I don't necessarily trust. And they've got some third party seller who I definitely don't trust. And they're going to send it to me. And then maybe I don't like it. Maybe I paid shipping. Maybe I got to send it back. And like, there's just all kind. there's a big trust problem there. And books were like, I don't really have to trust anybody. Like as long as they actually send it and don't send me like a, a, a box with a live Bobcat in it, like, I, I, I will get what I'm asking for. Yeah. And that sort of obviated that problem. Yeah. And that's the other part of this is books are, books are like the best, just, just like what Bezos himself realized books are like the best first product. And then you scale out into other things. So like if, if someone is trying to get, and I did, uh, I did the fulfilled by Amazon program, FBA, you, you, you may come across that online. Yeah. Um, I, I shipped my own books and I did FBA. I did both. Mm -hmm. It just kind of depends on like the, the value profile of a given book, but, um, which one makes sense for which value profile, something that'll sell fast. You want to, it's probably good to send into Amazon, Mm. um, because they have like storage fees and stuff. But if you have like a, if you're using your house, like I was and my storage fee, my own storage fee in a sense was zero. It's like, I I guess I can keep long-term stuff in my house Mm. and stuff that'll sell quick. I'll send to them and they'll handle, they'll handle the transaction and stuff. And, and when you do the, um, some some products as well, some books. It's kind of, it's it's very bizarre, and you you figure these things out as you go along. But some books will sell for like twenty five dollars prime. Like there's a big prime premium. But the, the but a used copy from a seller, if you have to like if the seller is in Indiana and they're going to send from their house in Indiana, people will only pay like seven dollars. And, and there's it's not logical really because it's like the guy from Indiana is going to get it there almost as fast, maybe a couple of days slower, but. But people just have a lot of faith in that prime, that prime logo. Oh man, no, totally. And and just yeah. um, I, I've noticed it myself. Just the impulse of like, I don't want to wait four days. I I want to wait two days or maybe one day. And like, yeah, if he were to if he were to put a dollar amount on that, if, if Bezos were to say like, well, you can get it for one day, but it's three dollars more. Yeah, uh, everyone would balk. But if he just says, this is the price and I'll give it to you for one, I'll give it to you in one day. It's in fact, I, I, from what I understand, there's been some jurisdictions that have tried to 
uh, ban free shipping because of the fact that it it obscures uh, the true cost of the service. Yeah, it doesn't surprise um, me. Yeah, so you yeah you you figure out and you you make these you learn these weird things. I mean, like if it's a highly technical manual that sells for a lot of money or something, the kind of person who's going to buy it is probably a good consumer too. And so they are going to notice like, cause Amazon's a little tricky. Like they'll, they'll make it look like the only option is the prime option or something. Um, but like a, a more savvy consumer, especially if they're spending a little more, they're going to like notice that there's used versions too. Yeah. So like those, those sort of things, if it's like a hundred dollar geology book from the sixties and there's, you, you'd be amazed like the weird stuff that has staying power. But like uh, if it's some, something like that, that I know it's going to take me probably a year to sell it, but when it sells, it'll be for a hundred bucks. Hmm. Uh, so I'm not going to send it into Amazon. I'll just hold on to it. And the buyer, people who buy that, they have no qualms about buying from the weird guy in Indiana. Um, so, so you learn little things like that. And that's, that's how you decide sort of what goes into FBA and what doesn't. And they have a lot of rules that you learn, and especially when you get into other categories like electronics and stuff. Yeah. And that's why you start with books or some, something comparable, you know, maybe clothing or something where it's just pretty durable goods that aren't going to, that don't require special shipping or something. Yeah. There's not a lot of dimensionality to it. Yeah. What would you, if you were to do, if you were to expand into a different sort of third-party sales? I had done on Amazon, I'd done a couple other things. Like I would just occasionally come across a certain thing that I knew would sell or that people had told me would sell. Uh, oddly enough, like VCRs were really big for a while. Maybe they still are. Oh, really? Yeah. I mean, like you go to, and that's one that like Goodwill doesn't have the expertise to like, they're not going to take those out of the system. So you, I'd go to Goodwill and you, and I would find the right kind of VCRs and they'd be like 10 bucks and then to sell for 150 or 200. I, I don't know why there's like specific VCRs that like hobbyists like or something like that. Weird. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, yeah. I mean, it's not going to be like, it's not, it's like, it's not going to be like vinyl. Like these sound better. Like these VHS was like a bad <laughs> I think they, format. I don't know. I actually don't know, but I'm guessing they might disagree. <laughs> They'd probably be like, no, you know, the, the nine, 1997 uh, Panasonic can't be beat. Like <laughs> that might be their take. I don't the remember. The fuzz is so charming. Maybe. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> um, so I got, I mean, I've done some electronics, a small amount. Um, I never did. And I, I think some of your other uh, group members have done this, but um, I never did like uh, order things off of Alibaba and, and, you know, put my own brand on them or something. And, and then Drop sell shipping. Them. Yeah. Um, or even just, uh, just, I guess like maybe they call it wholesaling or something like, uh, you know, you buy like a thousand yoga mats and then get a bunch of fake reviews to say they're the best yoga mats ever. And then, um, sell them for $19. Like that's huh. a pretty, that's a popular business. Like, and it's like the same exact yoga mat that like 50 other people are selling. You just have to, uh, make maybe have a better brand name and a more, a better write up or something. And I wonder why the Chinese do that because it seems like they could, and maybe it's just like, is it literally just like, you're the, you're the white guy, you know, like yep. they have, they have the white guy that sort of represents the company and he's just there to be like eye candy. Maybe that's you in that situation. I don't know. I'm not sure. Cause I mean, Amazon is so like anonymizing anyway, like a lot of people, even when they'd buy straight from me, um, like when it was obvious it'd be shipped from me, I think you can tell some people didn't realize it wouldn't be coming from Amazon. Huh. Um, some people, most people understand that, but but Amazon does tend to be pretty anonymizing. I guess as long as the product description is written in like in a nice English, they maybe they think it's a better product or something. But yeah, and that's that's something I wanted to explore with with some of our members is because we have guys that have writing skills. Yeah, and 
it seems like there are a lot of industries, especially like, like real estate is a big one where I'll see a property that's being sold for $400,000. And the, you know, so the, the, the agent is getting like a five figure commission on this, on this sale. And it's literally incoherent. The description. Yeah. It's like, it, it, it's like somebody you, it's worse than if you paid like one of those uh, mechanical Turk type sites to write it up for you. Yeah. Or an AI. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's, that just seems, well, real estate in general seems like it's gotta be disrupted, but um, yeah, this, this, this comes back to like a, maybe it's not a thesis, but a, an idea I, I keep having, which is that a lot of industries that are maybe dominated, maybe, maybe they don't qualify as blue collar, but they're, um, they're, they're kind of like a non elite. Yeah. I mean, they're not, yeah, they're not, they're not uh, email jobs. Um, yeah. You're not just sitting and emailing people, things like maybe real estate agent or car salesman, or even in some of the trades too, like general contractor stuff. There's, I think, my, my thesis is that there's like room for there's room for like really smart people who don't, who would normally self-select out of that career, but there's like a lot of opportunity for those people. Someone, I mean, I would like for people to prove me right. I don't, I don't know one way or the other, but that's kind of what I'm thinking is that like, I, I've gone around shopping for cars lately and it's like all the salesmen are really bad, like, but, but selling cars can be lucrative. So like, why aren't they trying? Like, isn't there someone who's good at this? Like, and could I do this? I, I mean, uh, that sort of stuff. Like maybe it's, maybe it's, I, I think that like really bright, conscientious people, maybe it's like a Dunning Kruger thing where they're, they're sort of afraid they won't be good enough. And so they like, because, because it's so variable, right? Any, any, any sales job, really the outcomes are, are technically really variable, but it's not really variable to you as an individual. Like if you're smart and handsome and charming, like you're going to do well. And, and like, you, you can almost <laughs> like, I, I know people that have effectively cashed out being just sort of tall and handsome into like huge amounts of money in pharma sales or, mm-hmm. or real estate. And th- I think, I think some of these people and they have this sort of credentialist mindset or this, 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 I, I can't even articulate exactly what it is, but it's like, because there's high variability in this industry and I don't like high variability, I'm not going to look into that but you would almost certainly do well because yeah. you are not the typical or the median or the modal participant. Yeah. Like, I mean, where I work, I think for a lot of grad guys, like particularly coming out of undergrad, I, I've like mentored a lot of these guys, they come into the company. And I think, um, I think for them, it's like thought of as a pretty good job out of college, like a, a, a company that looks good on their resume and stuff. Yeah. And they, um, but they, but they struggle. And for many of the same reasons I struggle, like, cause they're just not into it. They just, they, once they get there, they're like, okay, it's nice to have the name on the resume, but this work yeah. is really dumb. It's really boring. Okay. And I don't even get what we do here and that sort of stuff. So it's like, and a lot of these guys, I'm like, you're very smart. You're uh, you're, you have good people skills. You took this job cause you thought it was like what people like you do, Yeah. but you'd make more money selling cars or you'd have more and you'd make more money and have more fun. Yeah. Like, just go do that. And then, but they, I mean, obviously for the same, you know, psychological hangups, they can't allow themselves to do that because they, they think they're supposed to work in a company. Yeah. We're going to have to just smash that whole 
mentality because there's so so many just cognitive resources are just wildly misallocated (laughs) yeah that's my yeah that's my sense of it there's so many people just sitting just sitting it's so brutal (laughs) so yeah well uh well that's a fascinating business um and yeah i have one quick final rant like i have no, no no i don't hesitate to say that like if you're organized and motivated, you can, you can, the first like onboarding phase is probably a decent time commitment. If you're like organized and motivated, you put in the time up front, but then it becomes pretty passive. I don't have much doubt that like the kind of guys that we're you know talking to could easily be making like 10 grand a month or something, just selling books. And they're working maybe 20 hours a month or something like 40 hours a month instead of 40 hours a week sort of thing. Yeah. I haven't, I don't have many doubts about that. Like if you're willing to just operationalize and do it, it's pretty realistic. And if, and if that's not the right category for you, you know, yeah. I mean, maybe, maybe you do furniture, maybe you do one, one last thing. that's kind of funny. There's this brand of baby stroller that has a lot of interchangeable parts. Maybe they're all like this, but this particular one I like, Uh, I think it's called city select. And my wife like was noticing tons for sale on like the Facebook groups and, and Craigslist and stuff. For pretty cheap. I think they retail for like 600 bucks, but you could get one that's been used for like two years by one kid for like 50 bucks or hundred bucks. And they're, the parts are like modular. So if you buy one for like 50 and it has one broken part, you just buy another one for 50 and then you have a perfect one. Yeah. So, so we bought like, I think we bought like five or six of them over time, not a ton, but we we've done this a couple of times where we just buy the ones we see, or people even give them away for free. And, um, and then just put the parts together so you, so you have one good one and then we'd go and sell it for like 250 or 300 like and that's a bit of a hustle right and it's it's not like glamorous but there's these little opportunities all over the place yeah well this i i feel like an indication of the success of of sort of the conversation is that i now am like going to go do a trip to a thrift store like this weekend i'm going to go i'm going to go do that cuz this it seems like a really good yeah like really good I think, idea um, you know, like the Sam Hyde still does his podcast thing. I don't, I only see it sometimes on YouTube because it's free and I don't know, whatever, but he was talking to uh, his old, his like co co-writer, co actor guy, Nick, he does a antique store now. And his advice was just like, pick a category, just pick one. And he, he's picked rugs. So if you follow him on like Instagram, you'll see he's always selling rugs. A pick rug merchant. Category. That's perfect. Yeah. Pick one category right. and get to know it really well. And you become, you get, you develop a sixth sense for like what's valuable and like where the value is going to be and like how fast something will sell. Like it's, it's like, it's, it's very much a sixth sense. Like you just, I trust when he says like this rug will sell within five days for a thousand dollars. He's probably right within like 10% of that. Yeah, man. Well, this is, this is, uh, this is a great idea. I'm excited to go check it out. Thanks so much, Robert, for being on the show, talking about the business and Check us out at patreon.com slash exit underscore org if you're interested in getting involved with what we're doing. The mission, again, is to help people get out from under sort of the corporate boot. Thanks a lot.